especially important for me, for me to acknowledge that. Okay, so I'm going to start. Um, the essay starts with a, a, a quotation from a song by Gregory Isaacs, um, the Jamaican vocalist. Um, the song is called Border, and the lines are, if I could reach the border, then I would step across. So please take me to the border, no matter what the cost. And for those of you who don't know the context, um, he's speaking about the border between a land defined by slavery and dispossession to a land of, of freedom and possibility. I have a difficult time driving at night. The oncoming headlights make me agitated. I lean forward and squint through the windshield, but it does little to dampen the effect of the lights coming at me, one pair after the next, beaming in my face and passing, beaming and passing, over and over and over. My body stiffens. I clench my teeth. If there is music playing on the car stereo, even softly, it can suddenly come to feel like a power drill is being pressed up against my temples. If my family is in the car with me, I get short with them, snap at them, until everyone is sitting nervously. No one dares to speak. After arriving at my destination, I remain in an agitated state, sometimes for hours. If it has been an especially long drive home, I go straight to the bedroom and shut the door. I turn off the lights, curl up in a fetal position on the bed, and pull the blankets up over me until I am in total darkness and silence. This is part of what I carry, have carried, since I was 18 years old. It is minor compared to what others experience, others who face systemic violence and trauma as an ongoing condition of their daily existence in the United States. I am the son of two immigrants. My father was Australian. My father was Australian of Scottish descent. He migrated to the United States to pursue scientific work after the Second World War. My mother was born in India when it was still a British colony. She came to the United States in 1958 on a scholarship as a student, one of the few Indian women to do so in those days. What happened to me at the age of 18 changed the course of all our lives, but mine most of all. In one night, I learned viscerally about the racial and economic lines of power that course through the fabric of American society. I learned about who can cross those lines and who cannot, and perhaps most powerfully, I learned about the conditions and the costs of crossing. It started with a flashlight pointed into my face, blinding me as I squinted, clenched my teeth, and tried to make sense of what was happening. On the other end of the flashlight were two white police officers. One stood directly in front of me, shining the torch into my eyes. He could not have been more than five years older than I was. When he finally pointed the light downward and my eyes adjusted, I could see that his face was red with anger. That's the guy, he said. That's the guy. It was the beginning of summer in 1984. 
At the time, I was staying with my older half-sister in the lower middle class housing complex at the northern reaches of Los Angeles County. My half-sister was like a second mother to me, and her son, who was also 18, like a brother. This was the white side of my family, but they were always struggling, more so than my Indian side. My sister was a single mother, supporting three kids on a job at a real estate office where her capabilities and intelligence were never appreciated. The apartment complex where she lived was full of other working families, most of them white, some Mexican-American. On that night, around 1 a.m., there was a loud knock on the door of my sister's apartment. We were all asleep, my sister, my nephew, and me. I was on a couch in the front room in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. At the sound of the knocking, I sat up and rubbed my eyes while my sister hurriedly, hurried nervously to the front door. She disappeared out onto the front porch where I heard male voices. Still half asleep, I pulled on a hoodie and followed her out onto the porch. I was immediately blinded by the flashlight. That's the guy. During the night, two young men had stolen my nephew's pickup truck, were involved in a drug transaction, and led the police on a high-speed chase. Strangely, they drove the pickup back to the exact spot from which they had taken it, in front of my sister's apartment, then jumped a wall and sped off on foot through the complex. The police pursued but couldn't keep up with them. So instead, the officers ran my nephew's license plate found that it was registered to the address where they were all soundly asleep and came pounding on our door. We discovered later via the police report that one of the youths the police had been chasing was a, quote, young male with long, dark, bushy hair, wearing a hooded sweatshirt. I fit that description. I was a mixed race Indian American teenager. My skin was an ambiguous shade of light brown, but a shade darker than ambiguous in the summers. I was into punk rock and Jamaican reggae, the latter with its message of third world unity and liberation resonated deeply with me, for I had grown up hearing stories about my Punjabi grandmother's involvement in the struggle to end British colonial rule in India. My mother, then a young professor, often opened our home to gatherings of her graduate students who hailed from the decolonizing nations of Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, and the Middle East. Stories of independent struggles echoed through my childhood, and by now I had grown my hair into long, thick, rebellious curls. A young male with dark, bushy hair wearing a hooded sweatshirt. This is who I was as I was led away from my sister's house my hands cuffed tightly behind me. This is who I was in the back of the police cruiser as the arresting officers drove me down the freeway to a nearby police precinct. This is who I was as they took the fingerprints, as they placed me <coughs> against a wall to take the photos front, side, side, and as they walked me down the hall to an interrogation room. This is who I was as they questioned the origin of my name asked me if I had aliases, played good cop, bad cop. We know you did it. You're a liar. Stop lying. We know you did it. Just sign this and we'll let you go with a citation. 
sign this or you're getting transferred to county jail. I remember now that when they asked what kind of name is that, I said, it's Indian. And I did something that had become a habit in those days. I raised my hand to my face vertically, like a border that ran from head to toe along the ridge of my nose, dividing me in two parts. I'm half Indian, I said. I am not telling this story now to elicit sympathies. And I am most definitely not telling this story now amid the long overdue national reckoning with police violence against African Americans to say, look, I share that experience. On the contrary, even at the age of 18, I could see that my case was different. Over the course of that summer, I was in and out of the courts, going through one after another pretrial motion as the lawyer who my parents had hired moved to get the charges against me thrown out. Those efforts were unsuccessful. The arresting police officers were so adamant that I was the person they had been chasing that the DA wanted me charged and tried. We were assigned a date for a jury trial at the end of August. Over the hours and days sitting in courtrooms, I witnessed something that I might have understood intellectually from a distance, but now felt viscerally. I saw all the other young men with dark, bushy hair going up before the judges. They were the same age as me. Any or every one of them could have simply been like me at the wrong place at the wrong time, looking the wrong way. They were represented by overworked public defenders who did not move for dismissal but bargained for the lowest charge, the shortest length of time behind bars. Those young men who were not fluent in English or whose parents were not fluent had to rely on what seemed to be a single Spanish translator assigned to the whole court complex. Their brownness was not variable. Their brownness was not Indian American. They were not the children of professors. And I watched as one after another they moved through the courts toward jail time. This was not my fate. Before I went on trial, my lawyer had me cut off my rebellious curls. I walked into the courtroom in a suit with my hair cropped short and neat. He entered into evidence the fact that I was on the cross-country and track teams in my high school, that I had a 4.0 GPA and was class valedictorian. He read depositions from my college professors, attesting to my academic achievements and good character. I had been racialized one way when I was arrested. Now, my lawyer was making absolutely sure that I would be seen through a different lens, as an all-American boy, as a white, all-American boy. I was acquitted. Even after more than 30 years, I returned to these events again and again. Despite their traumatic after-effects, they ground my understanding of the world and continued to teach me lessons about the operations of race, class, and gender in the United States, about the so-called justice system and the school-to-prison pipeline. But recently, my early encounters with the power of US courts and law enforcement 
have also begun to frame my understanding of the larger history and ongoing experience of South Asians in the United States. The early story of South Asians in the United States is often framed by the Asian exclusion laws that the US government passed in the late 19th and 20th centuries. Hundreds of predominantly male Punjabi immigrants first arrived in British Columbia at the turn of the 20th century. Around 1904, many of these men traveled southward into Washington and Oregon to work in lumber mills, and then in the years that ensued, more Punjabi migrants entered through San Francisco and came across the southern border from Mexico to work as farmers and farm laborers in the fertile lands of central California and the US Southwest. This was an era of large-scale anti-immigrant sentiment directed most pointedly at Asian workers. The US had passed the Asian Exclusion Act in 1882, and when East Indians began arriving on the West Coast, they became a new target for the vitriol and violence of white nativists. Newspapers warned of the latest Asiatic invasion, a tide of turbans that threatened to engulf the United States from its Pacific shores. Over the same years, Indian students, political exiles, farmers, and farm workers began to organize politically against British rule in India, planning an insurrection from their home base on the US West Coast. They formed the revolutionary anti-British Gugger Party with headquarters in San Francisco, believing that the Americans, who had also, after all, fought for freedom against the British, would be sympathetic to their cause. The opposite was true. The US and British governments cooperated to target Indian immigrants and surveil their political activities. In 1917, all this came to a head. In February, Congress passed a new immigration law that expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act so that the US now barred immigration from all of Asia, including India. Soon afterward, US authorities rounded up dozens of Indians affiliated with the Gugger Party and put them on trial for conspiracy and sedition. The dominant narrative of early South Asian American history rightly places these events at the center. As soon as Indians established a viable, a visible presence in the United States, they were vilified, attacked, cast as undesirable, as threats to the United States who needed to be thrown out and kept out. This is all true. In fact, anti-Indian sentiment frequently turned violent. In 1907, a mob of white men rioted on the streets of Bellingham, Washington, pulling Indian lumber workers out of their bunkhouses, beating them, robbing them, and driving them out across the border into Canada. A few weeks later, a Sikh worker named Bhagwan Singh was murdered in central Oregon. Yet, the story is also more complicated than this. From the 1890s through the end of the 1910s, even as the nativist agitation against Asian immigrants intensified and the Asian exclusion laws were broadened and strengthened, certain kinds of Indians were desired and celebrated across the whole of the United States. In these years, the United States experienced a craze for India and the exotic East that has, in many ways, not been surpassed since. 
This was the moment in which yoga <coughs> first became widespread fashion. The same was true of Vedantic Hinduism, women's clothes made of flowing Indian fabrics, oriental rugs, and other home furnishings, tobacco products sold under brand names such as Mecca, Red Camel, Fatima, Baghdad, Hindu, Mughal, and Royal Bengal, and grand street processions, circus spectacles, and theater performances adapted from fantastical European tales of the East. Richard Burton's rendition of 1001 Nights, Edward Fitzgerald's Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, Thomas More's La La Rook, and Oscar Wilde's Salome. Indians were desirable to the extent that they confirmed, performed, and delivered upon Western colonial understandings of certain types of mysterious and exotic oriental. Princes, swamis, magicians, acrobats, and dancing girls. While they remained undesirable as common laborers, Indian migrants and sojourners were desirable to the extent that they provided American consumers with goods and experiences that conjured the fantasy world of the colonial Orient. The regime at US borders presented a similar and partially overlapping set of distinctions between the desirable and the undesirable. The anti-Asian immigration laws of the 1880s to 1920s were, in fact, not simply and straightforwardly exclusion laws. Every immigration law of the so-called Asian exclusion era contained provisions that defined some groups of Asian immigrants as exceptional and admissible to the United States. In fact, uh, in effect, as historian Madeline Sue has recently pointed out, the logic embedded in these laws was not one of exclusion, but of selection. From the 19th century onward, the US state institutionalized distinctions of class, education, and professional skills in such a way that some Asians were defined as desirable, even as others, the majority, were defined as undesirable. The key distinctions lay in the exceptions or provisos of each immigration act. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, for example, specifically targeted Chinese workers for exclusion. The coming of Chinese laborers to the United States is hereby suspended, read the main clause of the act. It shall not be lawful for any Chinese laborer to come, or having so come, to remain within the United States. Section 13 of the act, however, exempted Chinese merchants, teachers, students, tourists, and government officials. In 1885, the United States passed the Alien Contract Labor Law in large part as a means of strengthening the Chinese Exclusion Act and expanding its provisions to other foreign workers from Asia and Southern Europe. Once again, the law singled out laborers, and once again, it contained a series of exceptions. Certain classes of foreigners were still permitted to be imported under contract. These included workmen who had specific skills that were in demand here, as well as, quote, professional actors, artists, lecturers, and singers. The 1917 Immigration Act vastly expanded the number of immigrants who would be barred from entering the United States. Asiatics were deemed undesirable alongside, quote, 
idiots, imbeciles, paupers, professional beggars, epileptics, alcoholics, felons, prostitutes, anarchists, and a whole range of others. Indeed, on its face, the 1917 Act appears to have completed and secured the exclusion of Asian immigrants from the United States, and the law has largely been understood as having done so. However, it also expanded and more closely specified the types of the types of immigrants, Asians included, who would be exempted from the law and allowed to enter the country. These included, quote, religious teachers, missionaries, lawyers, physicians, chemists, civil engineers, teachers, students, authors, artists, merchants, and travelers for curiosity or pleasure. Between the late 19th and early 20th centuries, in other words, the U.S. government continually refined its laws in an attempt to identify and exclude the undesirables among the rapidly increasing number of immigrants at the nation's border, while also allowing the entry of those deemed valuable. This period was later mythologized as an age of immigration, in which the United States was guided by the principles set out by the poet Emma Lazarus, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be masses yearning to breathe free. It was more accurately an age in which the U.S. state put in place a system of strict distinctions between acceptable and unacceptable groups of incoming immigrants, guided not by lofty principles but by the immigrants' education, skills, religious practices, political beliefs, and perceived physical and mental fitness. The U.S. government sought to control and police the entry of immigrants, to distinguish between those who were desirable as either short-term residents or potential citizens, and those who were not. The immigration laws of this era unabashedly used race and national origin as one of the primary bases for such distinctions. And on these bases, Asiatics were to be kept out of the country. Asiatics the white nativists insisted, were a scourge and a danger. At a deeper level, however, the United States was also making distinctions within the racial category of Asiatic, distinctions based on class, occupation, education, and profession. This second level of distinction had as important an effect on Asian immigrants as the, uh, as the first. It not only determined which Asians were allowed to enter the United States and which were not, but shaped what and who Asian immigrants claimed to be in order to gain entry into the United States, and just as important, what kind of Asianness they would need to embody, prove, or perform in order to stay. In some cases, incoming Asian migrants made fairly minor and straightforward adjustments in the ways they represented themselves in order to enter the United States. This was the case, for example, with one early group of Indian migrants, a community of Bengali Muslim traders of silk goods, who began entering the US to sell their wares in the 1880s. After passage of the Alien Contract Labor Law in 1885, these men faced a distinction that could mean the difference between admission or deportation. If they presented themselves as peddlers, they ran the risk that immigration officials would assert that they were entering the US in order to sell, quote, goods not their own, 
and were thus alien workers under contract to someone else, and were to be excluded. If the same Indian men traveling to sell the same goods represented themselves as independent merchants, then they fell under one of the categories of persons that the contract labor law specifically allowed, and they would be admitted. These men also learned to dress the part. Although they invariably traveled to the United States in third class or steerage section of passenger ships, and the only description of the men at leisure that I've found describes them sitting with one another in loose Indian clothes on the front step of a shared home, formal photographs show them dressed to high standards to the high standards of middle-class respectability in suits with cufflinks and pocket watches. The historian Nayan Shah writes about a phenomenon that was playing out along the United States southwestern border in this era. This was a time when Mexican migrants were allowed much greater movement across the US-Mexico border than Asian migrants were allowed at ports of entry such as San Francisco and Seattle. As a, result, uh, as a result, Sikh men from Punjab, in search of agricultural work in California, Arizona, and New Mexico, began to route their travels through Mexico. Before attempting a border crossing, they packed away their turbans, changed their names, learned basic Spanish, cut their hair and beards, and trimmed their facial hair into what the authorities described as Mexican mustaches. In other instances, mig Indian migrants resorted to much more elaborate ruses in order to navigate the thin line of acceptability. This was the case with a young chef from Karachi named Ranji Smile. In 1901, Smile became part of a scheme concocted by two Wall Street financiers to open the United States' first Indian restaurant. The proposed establishment was to be a Fifth Avenue oriental spectacle with Smile as the head chef. Wealthy New Yorkers would be served by Indian waiters and entertained by real Indian musicians and a dancing girl. In lush surroundings furnished with oriental rugs, curtains, and wall hangings. The contract labor law barred Smile and the financiers from importing Indian workers. So they resorted to one of the law's exceptions. Smile went to India, hired the workers, and on the way back into the United States, posed as Prince Ranjit of Baluchistan, traveling with his retinue of 33 servants and musicians. In this guise, Smile simultaneously placed himself in one of the categories of Indians deemed acceptable for entry to the United States, a traveling dignitary and performed one of the most desirable images of the exotic East, the Grand Maharaja surrounded by servants, bodyguards, and scantily clad dancers. And this was a, a visual trope that you saw throughout this period. As colorful as this story may be, at a remove of more than 100 years, the scheme is important for what it reveals about the line that divided the acceptable from the unacceptable. The scheme failed. And for the next 15 years, Ranji Smile continued to be the butt of jokes in the New York press. Yet, he still possessed qualities that were valued by Americans. In addition to having a unique skill as a chef, 
thus satisfying the contract labor laws exception for skilled workers, Ranji was able to embody and perform exactly what Americans desired of exotic India. So in the years that followed, he recovered, even thrived, doing residencies at top restaurants and five-star hotels throughout the US Northeast. But the workers who Ranji brought to, the, brought to New York from British India did not fare well. A few months after their arrival, they were rounded up from locations across New York City, placed in detention at Ellis Island, and deported to Britain. Here they languished penniless in a waterfront boarding house in East London, unable to return to their homes and families on the subcontinent. When they ceased to be members of a royal retinue, they ceased to be acceptable for entry into the United States. They were simply Asiatic laborers. US restrictions on Indian citizenship produced their own sets of claims. Claims, performances, and contortions that were in some ways more insidious in their effects. The best known is the Supreme Court case of Bhagat Singh Teen. In 1923, Teend, an immigrant who had come to the United States as a student and had been active in the anti-colonial Gother Party, went up against the government of the United States with the claim that he and other Indians like him should be allowed to become American citizens. At that moment in history, the United States permitted only two categories of persons to naturalize as US citizens. Quote, free white persons, and, quote, people of African nativity and descent. Teend, like a number of other Indians of the day, made a citizenship claim that drew upon European anthropology, American racial science, and Indian and Orientalist notions of caste. Teend's argument, as a, quote, high caste Hindu, unquote, from northern India, he was racially Aryan, and therefore Caucasian, and therefore white, and eligible to become a US citizen. A generous reading of Teen's strategy is that of the two available options, it was easier for Teen to claim whiteness than to claim that he was of African nativity or descent. A less generous reading is that Teen and other Indians saw that the citizenship of people of African descent was a citizenship only by name. Mm. And a less generous reading still is that in claiming US citizenship through race and caste, Teen chose to identify himself with whiteness. That despite his involvement in the fight to end British colonial rule in India, Teen chose at this crucial moment to identify with whiteness rather than with African Americans and other struggles for freedom in the United States. In any scenario, the point is that the United States laws and racial ideologies structured and determined Teen's choices. Fifteen years after Teen's bid for citizenship failed, another group of Indian Americans took the fight to Congress. Beginning in 1939, a coalition that included Indian business people, writers, professors, political exiles, farmers, and former shipworkers lobbied both the House and the Senate. They sought to enact legislation that would allow Indians already residing in the United States to naturalize and thereafter provide for 100 Indian immigrants per year to apply for citizenship. This was part of the quota system at that 
What is striking about the arguments that these Indian Americans provided is how much they mirrored the logic of the Asian exclusion law's exceptions. The lobbyists asserted that Indian immigrants, despite their racial ineligibility for citizenship, had already proved their acceptability along other lines, those of class, education, and service to the nation. In their testimony before Congress, most of the men in this group lauded the contributions of Indian immigrants who had brought exceptional skills, talent, and intellect to the United States, but who could not become citizens. J.J. Singh, an importer with a shop on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and one of the primary lobbyists, went out of his way to assure Congress that the citizenship quota of 100 per year would not bring a new wave of uneducated Asiatic laborers. There was only one person among the lobbying group, a community leader and former ship worker named Ibrahim Chowdhury, who testified explicitly for the naturalization of thousands and thousands of farmers and factory workers who had been living in the United States undocumented since the <coughs> passage of the 1917 Asiatic Barred Zone Act. But even Chowdhury had to frame his advocacy in terms of the contribution these men and their families made to the US war effort. I speak for these men, Chowdhury testified, who while they themselves have no rights under Oriental exclusion, have seen their sons go off to war these last years to fight for a democracy which they, their fathers, could not themselves enjoy. Why do I bring up all these desperate, disparate moments from the past in which South Asian immigrants recast and refashioned themselves performed the exotic, claimed whiteness, lauded high achievers, and celebrated those who fought in American wars. It is because for over a century we have been doing all these things to prove, to prove that we are acceptable and desirable, to prove that we should be able to come here, to remain here, to become citizens, to achieve national belonging. It is because 100 years after Bhagwan Singh was murdered in central Oregon, members of our communities are being attacked and murdered still, and in increasing numbers. So I want to ask at this point, what exactly is the price of acceptability? I have been asking myself this question with greater urgency since the 2016 election. There was a particular moment in the election that crystallized the predicament that South Asian and Muslim Americans now share. This was the moment in which Kizar Khan stepped onto the stage of the Democratic National Convention. Throughout the election, in contrast to Trump, Hillary Clinton had repeatedly celebrated the achievements of South Asian and Muslim Americans, insisting that they, we, were an important part of the American national fabric. This theme reached its apogee when the Clinton campaign gave the stage of the Democratic National Convention to the parents of Humayun Khan, a Pakistani-American U.S. Army captain killed in the George W. Bush administration's Iraq War. Sorry. For many South Asian and Muslim Americans, it was a powerful thing to see this elder couple 
so familiar that they could have been our own aunt and uncle, stepped to the center of the national spotlight to challenge directly the racism, xenophobia, and Islamophobia of Trump, along with his proposed policies and his followers. Kizer and Ghazla Khan did this with an inspiring fearlessness at the convention and in ensuing interviews and public statements. But here was the bind again. In one party's rhetoric, Muslims and South Asians were always and forever foreign and retrograde. We were all potential terrorists who needed to be surveilled, policed, and ideally excluded and expelled from the nation. The Democratic Party's message was more subtle, but it was, to many of us, no less clear. America will accept, even praise and celebrate, Muslims and South Asians if they unequivocally prove their loyalty to the nation. Humayun Khan proved his Americanness by giving his life in service of US military, geopolitical, and economic pursuits in the Middle East. Other Muslims Clinton made clear in a series of debate appearances that followed would demonstrate their Americanness by becoming partners in the state surveillance of their own communities. To be recognized as Americans, the Clinton campaign implied, Muslims and South Asians should not exercise the right to criticize their government's foreign and domestic policies toward other Muslims and South Asians, but must help prosecute those policies. So while it was something unprecedented to see Kizer Khan excoriating Donald Trump for his hateful xenophobic rhetoric on live national television, there was nothing new about the choice presented to Muslim and South Asian Americans in that singular moment of the US presidential campaign. Since at least the late 19th century, South Asians in the United States have been posited as simultaneously threatening and desirable. And for over a century, these images have structured our lives like a never-ending trial in which we must prove that we deserve what Mimi Wynn has called the gift of freedom. If 100 years ago, South Asians had to navigate between the figure of the dangerous and denigrated Asiatic laborer and the enticing and desirable exotic Indian, we are now constantly navigating between the figures of the model minority and the terrorist. The election made clear to me two things. One, that these seemingly contradictory sets of ideas, exotic and dangerous, model minority and terrorist, desirable and undesirable, good Muslim, bad Muslim, are not contradictory, but rather are always paired and connected. That this is how racialization works in the United States. Not just for South Asians or for Muslims, but for every racialized group. Two that these pairings function as a structure of discipline. That is, we are rewarded socially, politically, economically for performing the role of the model minority, the immigrant entrepreneur, the moderate or secular Muslim, while at the same time there are real and clear risks for those who do not or cannot play those roles, who remain undocumented and contingent, who labor in the service economy, who live in hyper-surveilled urban working-class neighborhoods and worship in these neighborhoods' mosques, gurdwaras, and temples, 
who speak in accents or broken English, or merely converse publicly in foreign languages, Arabic, Farsi, Urdu, Hindi, Bangla, who wear the outer signs of their faith and ethnicity, beards, turbans, hijabs, kufis, saris, salakamis, or who openly criticize and protest US domestic and foreign policy. So both individually and as communities, we strive to move from one end of the binary to the other, to cross the border from unacceptable to acceptable, from terrorist to model minority. The binary functions like a carrot and stick, making us want to perform and prove our desirability, and thus disciplining us into becoming particular kinds of Americans. So I ask again, what is the price of acceptability? Should our goal as South Asians be simply to achieve national acceptance, when the nation from which we seek acceptance is a nation that gained its landmass through violent dispossession and its foundational wealth through the unpaid labor of enslaved people? Is our end goal to seek belonging in a nation that has yet to reckon with that past and with the myriad ways that past lives in and structures the present? Are we willing to bend and shape ourselves in order to become desirable to that nation? Could it be that we are asking the wrong people for permission to be here, to live and work here on this land? And what would it look like if our lives as immigrants and children of immigrants, our lives as grandchildren of those who struggled for freedom elsewhere on the globe were guided here, not just by the uncritical pursuit of national acceptance, but by transcendent visions of justice and equality, affiliation and belonging that go beyond the nation, that call the nation with all its violences and exclusions into question. Can we look at that future without blinking? What does it look like? And what is the border we need to cross show you a clip from the documentary that I've been working on alongside this, and um, there should be some, some resonance between different themes, but um, this film is something that I've been working on um, that, that morphed into the book that I published in 2013. So in other words, this began as a documentary film project um, in which um, I was I teamed up with my collaborator, um, Aluddin Ullah, to try to find out more about his own father's story. And it turned out that his father's story was part of a history that had not been accounted for anywhere. And that's what drove me into graduate school, to do the historical research to support the film. So um, uh, that meant that I couldn't work on the film for about 15 years. <laughs> Um, but now we're working on it again, um, and um, in, in a way that, that the book 
allows for a kind of more thorough and complex exploration of these histories of South Asian men who came here undocumented and, and settled within African American and Puerto Rican neighborhoods. Um, the, the film sort of, you know, in, in drawing on the strengths of its film as, as a medium, um, focuses more on a kind of personal journey that Aladdin is undergoing to find out about his father, who was one of those men who jumped ship um, many, many years ago, um, but who died when Aladdin was quite young. So, um, so the, the, the film sort of proceeds in a way following his search, but then it opens out into, there's one section where you'll see a bunch of different people talking about, um, he did this, he jumped ship, he did, they're all talking about, they're from about five different families who are all families of uh, men from what's now Bangladesh who jumped ship in New York City and settled in that area um, and married within, within those other communities, African American communities, Puerto Rican communities. So um, without further ado, I'll play that and then we can talk if there's more time. So this is a, a 15 minute work sample. So this is the kind of thing basically produced to go with grab proposals. <laughs> Kid. So this 
is going to be all condos. In a span of like 50 yards, it's a million dollar difference. My happiest days of my life were, were on this block. Because Chris was my best friend. I had crushes on all the girls that were in this building. So Chris would call me on the roof. And he was like, yo, you got the Incredible Hulk? So I put it in a bag. And I dropped it 15 flights from up there. All the way to 15th floor, right before the roof. Got you. That's kitchen, living room, my bedroom, and my brother's bedroom, and my parents' bedroom at the end. I was full-fledged into hip-hop. I loved it, I adored it, I worshipped it. By the time I got to fourth and fifth grade, I was sneaking to the outdoor shows, and I remember in front of my building, Black Park, they used to have all the rappers there. On 106th Street, it was the only place in East Harlem that I knew that you could actually do graffiti without the cops arresting you. And they were quick, they were like, and they were gone. So it's like Bonnie and Clyde, you know, you're in some underground movement. Hip-hop in general was the anthem of people who were disenfranchising the projects. I wanted to be part of that revolution. And my mom was just really pissed off my mom. She hated it. And I could almost see myself just moving away from my mom and my father. They lost me by then, I was gone. When we first started, I think what I knew about my father was kind of like bullet points. My dad left uh, Norcali and uh, got on a ship sometime in the 20s. We don't know the age. He landed in the Lower East Side. Then he eventually moved to East Harlem. He married a Puerto Rican woman, had my stepbrother and my stepsister, and then his wife, Victoria, had an aneurysm and she died. So 20 years have gone by and his asthma got really bad. Well, I think he went to Bangladesh to look for a young bride to take care of him. Married my mom, was an arranged marriage. Like literally, that's the extent of what I knew. I didn't know, I didn't know specifics. I can tell you that there were lots of times where you know, I looked at my father like an Uncle Tom dishwasher, like, you don't know anything about the hood, the projects. You're just an old man in the cane. It's fall in October 1983. My mom is out shopping. I have my headphones on, and my dog is biting my pants. So I take my headphones off, and I go to my parents' bedroom. Well, I open the door and I see my father sprawled out, and he's gasping for air, and he has a look on his face, a look I've never seen before. Here we are in the ambulance. I'm holding his hand, he's holding my hand, and he's from the villages of Bangladesh. I'm from the streets of East Harlem. We don't have anything in common. And I'm holding his hand, and he's holding on to mine for dear life. And to think the last thing that he remembers is looking at my face and holding my hand. Like, I feel like I have a responsibility to kind of tell his story. I weigh my entire career for this one moment. My callback at Paramount Studios. 
The money was really good, but after a while, I was getting so angry. I'm from Harbor Projects on 104th Street. Fuck, I know about terrorists and cab drivers. And I would say, I'm a comedian. Why don't you just let me read for like the best friend, like the, the kooky guy? And I walked out of the audition room saying, you know what, I don't be part of this bullshit anymore. And I remember on the plane ride coming back going, I need to know who my father is. I really need to know how did he survive. Wow, you know, this is like the, the first time in my life I saw a connection to my father. And this is like how we ended up with this project. Hey. When Aladine and I met, it was the late 1990s. I was asked to videotape his stand-up performances. It's happy to see you all. My name is Aladdin. And for those of you wondering, no, I don't own a 7-Eleven. <laughs> no. I don't own a loose hand. No, I don't drive a cab. And I have absolutely, positively, nothing to do with the Oklahoma City bomb. All right? After I finished filming his set, Aladdin approached me. He said that he'd been wanting to make a film about his father. What Aladdin told me was just so out of the ordinary. The period in which Aladdin's father came here and built a life here was at the heart of what's known as the Asian exclusion era. Asian immigrants were banned from coming to the United States. Aladdin and I agreed to start working on a documentary. I wanted to figure out was Aladdin's father just one guy who somehow made it from East Bengal to East Harlem, or was he part of some larger history? So, when I started out, we knew about father's friends who had married African-American or Puerto Rican women. So I wanted to look at the marriage records downtown to see how many of these marriages that I could find to like, figure out, were they just a small group of people, or was this something maybe bigger? I started finding one after another after another. But then I started looking at ship's manifests, looking at the same names. No passengers by those names, but lots and lots and lots of ship workers. Well, a lot of the Indians who got here, they were made commercial marines on British ships, what my father says, they get off, they get lost, they end up staying. Um, I forget just how old he was, but teen years, and his father died. It was so hard for him to get along with his stepmother. He wanted to leave that area. He was in trouble. So he ends up joining the Merchant Marines. He had a shovel coal to run the engines. And they would eat a lot of pepper to try to fight the seasickness. Captain took away their papers and money so that they wouldn't jump ship. Their ship landed in Baltimore. His friend told him to come with him, that they were going to go and see some people. It was very bad weather. So he went into a big, uh, his cat was hiding. But as the night wore on, his friend, he says, well, I'm staying. You have no choice, you have to go. The ship finally assumed the jump ship. He came here and he jumped ship, landed up in New York. And that's where the story begins. 
unfinished business for, for me, for us. Yeah, I mean, this the I mean, the essay kind of comes out of um, sort of a moment of being fed up to some extent, right? Of um, you know, especially you know, teaching media and um, being engaged in media production. Um, you know, so much of what I think 
has um, sort of um, directed my work, um, both critically in my own production, is really this idea of kind of expanding the narrative, expanding representations of, of in my case, of South Asians in the U.S. Um, and you know, there's a lot of that also comes for me out of being engaged in media production at the same time as like first reading, you know, Stuart Hall and, and Black British Cultural Studies and this idea that that you know that we can battle representations with counter representations that the field of culture and media is a constant um, sort of battleground, right? Um, and I think, you know, and then in my classes, you know, I teach a class on South Asians in the US, and I end that class um, with um, sort of the, the very recent emer emer emergence of South Asian characters and television programs, you know, that, you know, that has really just happened in the last five or six years, right? And, um, and, and each time I teach the class, actually, there's more and more and more, right? And, you know, earlier in the 90s, uh, you know, when there was a group of us in New York who were sort of engaged in media production, engaged in activism, etc., um, you know, the idea of, of more representation, of more um, of, of more images of us in the larger field of popular culture, um, of different stories, South Asian stories, etc. You know, that was sort of like this goal. But, but I feel like in the, the Trump era, there's, there's, there's been just this like, well, you know, we're trying to make ourselves acceptable, we're trying to break into certain kind of like mainstream spaces. Um, and for what, you know? And we're asking permission to be here from people who actually didn't have permission to be here. Right. And um, so it's sort of, you know, I feel like those, those kinds of um, contradictions around the kind of politics of representation, I think were there for a long time, but it took sort of the extremity of, of not just the extremity of the Trump of, of Trump and Trumpism, but the continuity, the fact that it wasn't actually, you know, that that, that has always been here, right? Um, and one of the one of the things that really struck me from my research on um, South Asian ship workers is, you know, they came here at a time when they had to live undocumented, um, but they built lives, and they built lives with other within other communities of color, both within their own networks, but also, you know, building new kinds of communities across these various forms of difference. Um, I don't want to romanticize that because there was also a lot of friction and difficulty and, and all of that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that struck me was that they were forging um, forms of belonging that were local and global and not national. They were rejected at the national level. They could not become citizens of the United States. But they were building these very rich communities and lives with other people who were denied full citizenship in the United States. Right? Um, and also with a vision that connected, you know, if you look at the, the black press throughout the early 20th century, um, you know, there's constant reporting on, on the Indian 
nationalist struggle and on anti-colonial struggles all over the world. There's this kind of like international, um, uh, this idea of internationalism that's present there. Um, and then you, know, you look at someone like Malcolm X, kind of making the shift from civil rights to human rights, trying to take um, take the case of of, um, of African Americans to the, the United Nations. So there are all these different ways that I think people have been trying to imagine different kinds of affiliation and connection and and life making that are on these other registers of the local or the global. Um, and I don't know what you know what that looks like, you know, in some kind of future. Whether that's the kind of thing that people have imagined under, you know, anarchists have um, have, or whether it's, um, you know, one of my colleagues, Manu, um, well, Vimalasari, but um, now he writes under the name Manu Karuka, just published a book called Empire's Tracks, which is about. Um, uh, it looks at the U.S. westward expansion through um, through the lens of both um, Plains Indian um, peoples and Chinese uh, railroad workers, right? And in the converse, in conversations that I've had with him, and have an interview that went up on, on um, Asian American Writers Workshop site, um, you know, the question that he's asking, which is in some ways an even more pointed one than the way that I've sort of come to it, is you know, he's thinking about histories of anti-imperialism and thinking about, well, what does it mean to be an immigrant and an anti-imperialist here at this time? And for him, the answer, he moved from, when I knew him as a graduate student, he was very much focused on South Asian American studies and diaspora, etc. And he became a, an indigenous, a scholar of indigenous history. Um, and that was sort of his, you know, the, the direction that, that he and his work are going towards is, is sort of looking to other um, ways of even imagining this place, right? And what, what does belonging mean in this place when we don't seek that belonging from the U.S. Does that answer mm -hmm. your question? Yeah. Uh, first, thank you for this work. It's really cool. Um, it's all in the um, I was wondering if you could comment on, um, I feel like early, early, early history, most Indians or South Asians uh, assimilate with blackness, but now we assimilate with whiteness. And I was wondering if you could comment on sort of how that happened. Is there, is it sort of a, Immigration policy issue, or is it more like um, more integral into how the U.S. exports media across the world and how it's consumed in other countries? I mean, I think that's a it's it's a really it's a lot of different things that all kind of combine. Um, um, you know, in the in the earlier period, um, I think there were ways, you know, in in, in you know, what I was just saying, you know, there are ways in which I think it was um, not only did South Asians experience a particular kind of racialization in the United States that then, that then made, um, uh, made them understand their place here as one that was closer to other communities of color, um, and also, you know, 
the, those communities found homes in, in those communities at a time when there was no home for them anywhere else. Um, and, and one of the things that changed you know, in 1965 with the immigration law that was passed then, um, there were two elements of that law. One was that it, um, it favored, um, which you probably know, it favored um, uh, professionals and engineers and people with specific skills. So it was, in some ways, you know, the, the, these various different immigration laws that I've been talking about, the earlier ones are thought of as, as exclusion laws. And the 65 Act is thought of as opening the doors. But in fact, they're basically doing the same thing, but they're just kind of converted. So in other words, the 65 law says, yes, all you, know, all, all you Asians can come in, but um, you know, we're giving the first preferences to engineers and, and you know, the educated, et cetera. Um, and um, so that was one element of the 65 law, and the other was family reunification family reunification clauses where that were actually originally written for, um, lobbied for by those representing um, like second generation um, European, Southern European immigrants um, and, and kind of increasing the amount of family that people could bring from places like Italy, et cetera. Um, but it also meant that, though, that this wave of South Asian professionals who came after 1965, first of all, they came and, and were very much, you know, as you're saying, you know, part of, um, you know, very much embraced this kind of the, the model minority idea and, you know, which is itself kind of pointed toward whiteness, right? So, um, so they followed this trajectory of, of coming to the U.S., sometimes getting graduate degrees if they didn't already have, one, have them, getting professional jobs, and then settling out in the white suburbs. Um, and so, so that also was very, very different in terms of, um, you know, the only, uh, the, the main kind of site of difference was between them and their white neighbors as opposed to the kind of multiplicity um, that the earlier immigrants were navigating in places like Harlem, right? Um, and the family reunification meant that, um, that increasingly that group that came after 1965 brought family members and kind of reconstructed families and reconstructed communities in this way that, you know, in the ethnic enclave kind of pattern um, where it was easier to kind of close the borders around your own community. Does that make sense? Yeah. But in places like the UK, like people feel like Indian and South Asians are more yeah. black and, and that that again was um, came largely through the, the the class differences in the two migrations. So that in the British case, the British were trying to rebuild after the Second World War and basically tried to recruit people from their former colonies that were just gaining independence. Um, I've even heard stories from people in Britain, I've never seen this, but stories of like these ads that were run in papers in, in India and Pakistan that kind of portrayed um, Britain as this place with like beautiful like, palm trees and, and stuff like that. I've never seen this, but I've heard it um, from a number of people in Britain. Um, so anyway, there was, there was a very particular kind of Migration that was driven by labor recruitment, where um, 
where Britain, the British government, wanted to bring in um, workers, people to work, to rebuild the, the British economy, the British industrial infrastructure after the Second World War. Um, and so that, that was a much more working class migration, and the kids were growing up in the 70s at a time when um, there was an economic downturn and huge amount of anti-immigrant sentiment was built. And so they were navigating, they and South Asians and um, Afro-Caribbeans were navigating that moment together in ways that, that also brought them together. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship you had with the, the film subject and how the research of the historical aspect of it kind of correlates with the, and also if you see that as a, some sort of co-creation with the subject, and how did that process go? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we're, we're sharing the directorial credit now. Um, and that partly came out of, um, so I mean, we've, we first met, you know, almost some, somewhere between 15 and 20 years ago um, when he was doing the stand-up work. Right? So, um, and so this is a project that sort of started from our um, conversations and then, um, you know, as I say in the kind of setup in the, in the, the piece here, um, then I became really interested in these historical questions and, and we ended up sort of, um, you know, work, I worked on the historical and the archival and Aladdin was then developing this one-man show about his, his father. Um, and so there was a time where he was working kind of on that, I was working on the research, and we would meet kind of consistently um, and sort of share what we had learned. And, um, and then, um, you know, many, many years later after, after the book was out and I had the safety of tenure um, and turned back to the film, um, you know, we, um, we then, we'd never sort of stopped working on the film. We were, always kind of meeting and every now and then doing a little shoot or, or whatever. Um, but then after 2013 in particular, we just started moving forward at a much faster pace and, um, you know, we, um, uh, the, the, the kind of central kind of balance in the film, it also kind of mirrors the balance that we've been kind of negotiating between ourselves in the sense of the kind of personal questions that Aladdin has and the historical questions that I have. And um, you know, we're very different personalities, but somehow we've managed to really connect around certain things. Like I also had a father who was much older and, and um, died when I was younger, um, who was married before and his first wife had died. There's like these very just kind of basic Human experiences that we that that we connected around, even though we grew up in very different circumstances. Um, and then in um, with Bangladesh, with the, the filming in Bangladesh, what happened was that I was it was when I was preparing my tenure case here one summer, and um, we had been talking for years about bringing Aladdin's mother, whose health was failing, bringing her back to her village to meet with her sister. And um, you know we didn't have any money to do this. We were trying to, you know, find out who we knew and like the Bangladeshi Airlines and before that went under. And, 
Um, so um, then this summer, when I was like intensely trying to put together my tenure package, um, Aladdin called up and he said, I'm, I'm going to Bangladesh. I got a ticket. And so he basically decided, well, I'm not going to wait for my mother anymore. Um, I just got to go and, and like meet my aunts and ask these questions. Um, and so I couldn't go. Um, so we just, we kind of, um, uh, we found, luckily one of our camera people who had worked with us in New York, who was Bangladeshi American, was, had moved back there. Um, but then Aladdin also found a second camera person. Um, and I put together a production plan from over here and sent it to him. Um, but then when it came down, to, and then each day while we were shooting, I would be on Skype with him in the morning and the evening. Um, but when it came down to it, my production plan, like in the middle of like the villages and monsoon, you know, monsoon part of the year in Bangladesh, um, just kind of, I mean, it was sort of a, a scaffolding, but Aladdin basically became a director as the at the same time that he was the subject. Um, and each night when I talked to him on the phone, we would have the camera person film him while I was talking to him. So we would do these kind of like, that's, so that's what you see at the very end where he's um, breaking down the hotel room um, that came out of our conversation after he had met his aunt and found out some things about his mother. So, um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah. We probably have time for like one more question and then Decrease. 